Oh, the ho, the ho, the ho, tied together with thongs. The ho made from poplar with a tooth of ash. The ho made from tamarisk with a tooth of sea thorn. The ho double-toothed, four-toothed. The ho child of the poor, bereft even of a loincloth. The ho started a quarrel with the plow. listening to the drumbeat forever after it's a podcast about the bronze age in the middle east i'm your host alex and this is my guest hi i'm leanne and we're listening to the debate between the hoe and the plow so this is part of a sumerian tradition of debate texts in which two inanimate objects compete to be more useful to humans so what i'm getting is that this is pretty common for actual sumerian like historically that they would have these debates between various objects in the house yeah well i mean at least it was a literary genre oh, okay like you know, it's it's part of the same like poetic tradition that would have existed before writing uh-huh. so it probably has its origins in some kind of poetic thing you know, outside of just writing stuff down just personification maximized yeah. having engaged in a dispute with the plow the hoe addressed the plow plow you draw furrows what does your furrowing matter to me you break clods What does your clod breaking matter to me? When water overflows, you cannot dam it up. You cannot fill baskets with earth. You cannot press clay to make bricks. You cannot lay foundations or build a house. You cannot strengthen an old wall's base. You cannot put a roof on a good man's house. Plow, you cannot straighten the town squares. Plow, you draw furrows. What does your furrowing matter to me? You make clods. What does your clod making matter to me? The plow addressed the hoe. I am the plow, fashioned by great strength, assembled by great hands, the mighty registrar of Father Enlil. I am mankind's faithful farmer. To perform my festival in the fields in the harvest month, the king slaughters cattle and sacrifices sheep, and he pours beer into a bowl. The king offers the gathered libation. The oob and the ala drums resound. The king takes hold of my handles and harnesses my oxen to the yoke. All the great high-ranking persons walk at my side. All the lands gaze at me in great admiration. The people watch me in joy. The furrow tilled by me adorns the plain. Before the stalks erected by me in the fields, the teeming herds of Shokin kneel down. In performing my labor amid the ripened barley, I vie with the mighty scythe. After the grain has been gathered, the shepherd's churn is improved. With my sheaves spread over the meadows, the sheep of Demuzi are improved. My threshing floors punctuating the plain are yellow hillocks, radiating beauty. I pile up stacks and mounds for Enlil. I amass emmer and bread wheat for him. I fill the storehouses of mankind with barley. The orphans, the widows, and the destitute take their reed baskets and glean my scattered ears. People come to drag away my straw, piled up in the fields. The teeming herds of Shakin thrive. Ho, digging miserably, weeding miserably with your teeth. Ho, burrowing in the mud. Ho, putting its head in the mud of the fields, spending your days with the brick molds in mud with nobody cleaning you, digging wells, digging ditches. What if the poor man's hand, not fit for the hands of high-ranking persons, The hand of a man's slave is the only adornment of your head. You deliver deep insults to me. You compare yourself to me. When I go out to the plain, everyone looks on, but insultingly, you call me Plow, the digger of ditches. 
So basically, the plow's single purpose is intensive land cultivation. It's large and unwieldy, and would have been expensive and labor-intensive to maintain. But when used correctly, it's a very efficient machine. Yeah, so what I'm getting from that is like, it's kind of like looking at present day and, you know, the common laborer versus like the automated machines that we we have. So for example, in like a grocery store, you know, what's more valuable? Is it the cashier or is it the million dollar technology where people can self-check out? Right, right, right. <laughs> the things that the plow associates with the hoe, you know, canals, ditches, and brick molds are all these new kinds of manual labor, you know, that are new in the 3000s BC. Mm -hmm. You know, the kind of thing that could be easily automated by getting a bunch of quote-unquote unskilled people to do it. Right. You need livestock in the form of cattle or donkeys to use a plow, which makes them inaccessible to the very poor, especially those living in cities who wouldn't have access to livestock. But on the other hand, hoes have many uses. Not only do they till soil, but they can also help with digging wells and canals as well as construction projects and shipbuilding. So the core of Ho's argument is that it's used year-round for many purposes. It's a simple tool that is easily repaired, and you don't need to own any other removable property in order to use it. So even the poorest people can use it to their advantage. So full access for all, essentially, versus with the plow. It's just, you know... Yeah. It's very specific. And, it, you know, like the, the idea that it requires the livestock and the extra, you know, I, and I'm sure it's not just the extra livestock. It's also somebody has to make sure that things are going right. And it's, you know, there's got to be some sort of oversight. Oh, yeah, with, for sure. You know, someone. So, you know, once again, back to that metaphor of the self-checkout, you still have a human being there to make sure that people right. aren't, you know, messing it up over time. Well, and in both cases, it's being operated to the benefit of a powerful institution. Mm -hmm. Then the hoe addressed the plow. Plow, what does my being small matter to me? What does my being exalted matter to me? What does my being powerful matter to me? At Enlil's place, I take precedence over you. In Enlil's temple, I stand ahead of you. I build embankments. I dig ditches. I fill all the meadows with water. When I make water pour into all the reed beds, my small baskets carry it away. When a canal is cut or when a ditch is cut, when water rushes out at the swelling of a mighty river, creating lagoons on all sides, I, the hoe, dam it in. Neither south nor north wind can separate it. The fowler gathers eggs. The fisherman catches fish. People empty bird traps. Thus, the abundance I create spreads over all the lands. After the water has been diverted from the meadows and the work on the wet areas is taken in hand, plow, I come down to the fields before you. I initiate the opening up of the field for you. I clear the recesses of the embankment for you. I remove the weeds in the field for you. I heap up the stumps and the roots in the field for you. But when you work the field, there is a procession. Your oxen are six, your people are four, you yourself are the 11th. I perform the preparatory work in the field. And you want to compare yourself with me? When you come out to the field after me, your single furrow brings you pleasure. When you put your head to work and get entangled in roots and thorns, your tooth breaks. Once your tooth is fixed, you cannot hold on to your tooth. Your farmer calls you, this plow is done for. Carpenters have to be hired again for you. A whole workshop of artisans surrounds you. The fullers depilate a sheepskin of fleece for you. They stretch it over the ringer for you. They toil at the straps for you. Then they place the fowl hide on your head. Your work is slight, but your behavior is grand. My time of duty is 12 months, but your effective time is four months, and your time of absence is eight months. You are gone for twice as long as you are present. When you are put on board and your hands ripped out of the beams, 
Your face has to be pulled from the water like a wine jar. After I have made a pile of logs, my smoke dries you out in the house. What happens to your seed funnel if it once falls? Anyone who drops you smashes it, making it a completely destroyed tool. And we see the kind of labor-intensive, resource-intensive upkeep that a plow requires. You know, it needs leather straps, and all these moving parts, and several of them are fragile. I just wanted to interject. It seems very, very obvious that they are almost a little hateful towards the plow, you mm. know. And I get it. They see it as excessive, you know, once again, since it is a very expensive piece of machinery. It's not very accessible. It creates more of this kind of class divide. Mm. Obviously, as the devil's advocate, I do have to say that I think both of them serve a purpose. Mm. I do think, you know, when we talk about agriculture, it's this idea that, yes, the hoe is important. It has this very fundamental use to agriculture. But I think the idea of becoming a civilization is not just plain agriculture. It's that idea of advancement. Mm -hmm. And it's that idea of being able to move and work fast enough so that you can progress further and, you know, expand your cities and create these city centers. And I think without the plow, that would just not be possible. Oh, that's for sure true. Right. And we see the plow for the first time in the 3000 BC. And I don't know, I think another angle of this is that, you know, these texts would be written by the scribes whose main job was doing clerical work inside the institutions, you know, mm -hmm. the temples and the palaces. And, you know, the main business of these institutions is, you know, taking in tribute of agricultural goods and animal products and, you know, more importantly, growing food and growing animals and you know, harvesting the products. Right. So, you know, in their day jobs as scribes, it, it doesn't take that much work for a bureaucrat to worry about making sure that everyone's hoe is working properly because there's two parts. <laughs> but, you know, there's lots of, you know, again, lots of moving parts to a plow. Right. And probably it's a bigger pain in the ass in their day job to worry about the upkeep of their plows, right. even though they are more important. Yeah, that, that's a really good point. So I didn't even think about that. But I'm sure, given the fact that these you know scribes, they live in the city, they're hearing this a lot more. You know, it's kind right. of like your day-to-day -day work complaints. You're like, yeah. oh, what happened today? Oh, you know, that plow, it broke down again. And, you know, it gets to the point where it's like, well, it's all I hear about. So, you know, here we go. Let's complain about it for the people because yep, yep, that's yep. what we hear. Now, whose monologue is really long, so we'll hear the second half of it later. But for now... I'm your host, Alex, and these are my guests. Kira. Bella. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. This episode will be about the southern Mesopotamian alluvium during the Uruk period. Broadly, we're looking at the period between about 3800 and 3100 BCE. However, this episode is the only one that will touch on the early or middle Uruk, that is the period before 3400. So this episode and the four episodes after it will focus on the late Uruk period between about 3400 and 3100 BCE. So in this episode, after an introduction to the city of Unug, or Uruk, we will look at the climate of the 3000s. Generally, the climate during this period is wetter than it is today, but it is drier than it was during the Ubayid, and starting around 4,000 and continuing into the late 2000s, it will be getting even drier. So we'll look at the environment of the alluvium, looking at the wetlands and the type of agriculture that will become possible as the wetlands start to dry up. And then the second half of this episode will look at state formation. So generally, we've seen individual houses accumulate food and authority. Today, we'll see those temples become the organs of the first states. Then we'll examine these states in the next episode. What I'd like to know is we're looking at the rise of the first true states. What what makes a true state as opposed to a, a pseudo state? <laughs> well, I, it's tricky. As far as I'm concerned, the state develops during the Uruk period because the new developments that we have during the Uruk are large bureaucracies with lots of different people on the payroll. And, you know, it's an institution that's being organized separately from a household or a family or like a you know, kinship unit. Like governments. 
Governments, yeah. It's, yeah, basically, it, yeah, it collects tribute, you know, taxes, basically. And it directs labor in its large society, and it has a you know, kind of institutional, you know, bureaucracy that runs it. Okay. Yeah, there, there's lots more stuff we'll talk about later, but that's that's the gist of it. That follows. That sounds like a city to me. No, state, sorry. Oh, yeah, it's a city-state. <laughs> and stay tuned for future episodes where we'll talk about huge buildings and the invention of writing. Dang, first writing, that's huge, and you just, like, blast it right over it? Like, what? The writing that we get during the Uruk is not grammatical sentences. It's much more like if we kept records using only numbers and emojis. <laughs> numbers and emojis. You know what? Yes, that sounds functional. I think we're going back. Right, you're right. So, of course, the Uruk period is named after the city of Unug. Unug is its Sumerian name. Uruk is its Akkadian name. And in Biblical Hebrew, it was called Erek. And its modern Arabic name is Warka. And those are all cognate with Uruk. And also the <laughs> name Iraq may or may not be cognate with Uruk. That's apparently up for debate. But if so, it's interesting. Seriously. Previously, we saw it as a small, unremarkable Ubaid village. It's on a major branch of the Euphrates, upriver from Ur. So it's not on the coast, but it is near it. So being farther away from the coast, it may be better situated for farming because it wouldn't have any seawater washing into the river at high tide. So at the beginning of the Uruk period, the city of Unug is huge already, between 70 and 100 hectares, so it's comparable to Telbrock. It would have surpassed it around 3500 BCE or so. So for the rest of the 3000s BCE, Unug will be the most populous city in the world. That, combined with the fact that its culture is spreading across the Near East, is why we call it the Uruk period. It's not the only big site in the alluvium. Eridu is 40 hectares. One site, called Tel al-Hayad, is also 40 hectares. This might be Larak from the Sumerian king list. That is the third dynasty before the flood. There are several other sites in the 15 to 25 hectare range, but none are more than half as big as Unug. So in Unug, we have two separate temple and administrative centers. They're about 300 meters apart, or a three to four minute walk. They might not even be unified into a single political unit until after the end of the Uruk period. The wall around both of them is not built until around 2900 BCE, so the beginning of the early dynastic period. So one of these temple centers is the Aana, that name means House of Heaven, or House of An, the Heaven God. But this is the temple precinct of the goddess Inanna. It's not one single building, it's an entire complex of buildings, and in a future episode we'll look at the absurdly large buildings they build here, around 3100 BCE. And then the other complex is the Kulaba, which is the temple district of the heaven god An. This is famous for the later White Temple, and the name Kulaba, I mentioned in episode 12, might have a non-Sumerian origin. So like I said, we'll be looking at the Uruk period in the Alluvium during the 3000s BCE. Oh, and you said the Alluvium is a type of soil? Right. So yeah, the Alluvium is a region of southern Iraq. It's a wide, flat river plain. It's the only place for a little while around that you can irrigate large amounts of flat land. And that makes it the most agriculturally productive kind of throughout history, really. Like that particular region is a cultural unit unto itself. Where is the modern day Alluvium? Like the southeastern third of modern Iraq. So basically okay. all of the river stuff south of Baghdad. Okay, and alluvium itself is like a type of soil? Right, alluvial it's soil. Alluvial soil, something about a river riverbed? Right. Basically, the political system set up during the Uruk period will persist with only minor adjustments until Persian times. When it comes to artistic representation, writing conventions, the scribal framework and worldview, which informed real-life administration of political units, which of course informed how the real world worked. So what you're saying is that, like, the appearance of writing just starts to change the way that we work, like, the processes that we use. 
Well, yeah, because it's a more powerful administrative tool. You know, you can preserve information. Just shape everything, huh? Yeah, you no longer have to rely on, I mean, yeah, people's memories, obviously, and what they say to you. But also, you know, we have, early, you know, stamp seals and tokens and other kinds of record keeping earlier, you know, before the Uruk period. But writing is the thing that allows you to transmit entire concepts without any context. And just a quick note on periodization. The period between 4200 and 3800 is transitional between the Ubaid and the Uruk periods. Depending on who you ask, this period might be called the Terminal Ubaid and or the Early Uruk period. Either way, we don't have much evidence from Southern Mesopotamia during this period, so for our purposes, when I say Uruk period, I'm referring to the Middle and Late Uruk between about 3800 and 3100 BC. So to take a quick look at flora and fauna, the wetlands supported mammals like boars, gazelles, wild ass, wild cattle, and water buffalo, as well as otters and squirrels. Something I didn't know when I was doing the initial research for the Uruk period, but found out when I was doing stuff on Sumer, is that they had both water buffalo and bison. Huh. <laughs> so, you know, if you want to be pedantic about the buffalo-bison thing, they were both there. <laughs> They uh, herded water buffalo for milk, which is cool. Like, they live in the swamp, in the alluvial, like, marshy swampland, which is cool. And apparently they still do that in modern Iraq. Oh, wow. Right. But also, the European bison is the name for the species of wild bison that used to live all across Eurasia, including in Mesopotamia and Iran and, and that area. And it is now extinct everywhere except for small parts of Eurasia. Oh. So I don't know. The more you know. So then is buffalo what we have in North America? So, in, yeah, in North America we have bison. We have, oh, sh- I don't know the difference. <laughs> That's fair. Buffalo look much more like cattle. Like, they have big horns that, like, go out to the side and stuff like that. Okay. Oh, like water buffalo. I know, I know that water buffalo are in Africa. Right. In terms of aquatic resources, of course, they had lots of fish, both freshwater and saltwater, especially the carp, which could grow to about two meters long, as well as turtles and clams. The wetlands were home to lots of waterfowl, like herons, kingfishers, egrets, and gulls. They also, of course, they could dig in the soil to get clay. Reeds grew by the side of the river, which they could turn into baskets, boats, and huts. I mean, like, when you're talking about this, I can smell the soil. Yeah. I can see just, like, the greenery and, like, the wetness of the land. But, yeah, anyway. Oh, yeah. Birds. Uh, That's good stuff. Right? You know, something that comes across in their art is just the sheer amount of nature that, you know, in the rivers, in the marshes, in the grasslands, they're surrounded by, you know, (laughs) natural bounty in every direction. My my nature-o-meter is pinging. Right? I want to go there now. Can I go there? Is that a good idea or a bad idea? South of Rock. I don't know what the visa process is like, but I mean, there's no wars there right now. That's good. Yeah. Sounds really gorgeous. Right. Just like uh, Ithaca is gorgeous. True. <laughs> okay, onward. Trees were rare. Date palms were imported, so they're more valuable alive than dead, so you wouldn't want to cut them down for wood. They did supply palm fiber, which they used to make rope, and they also imported the Euphrates poplar, which shows up in a fair amount of the text we've been reading. So I mentioned the climate was getting drier. So starting in the early 3000s, we see the beginning of an aridification trend lasting 2,000 years. Aridification is just getting drier, right? Right. So from the middle Uruk period to the 4.2 kill year event that may or may not be involved with the fall of the Sargonic dynasty. So starting in the middle Uruk, we see a drier climate with less rain and more highly seasonal conditions. So now we get hotter summers and colder winters. The lakes in the Arabian Peninsula and the Persian Gulf area are drying up, so the climate is getting more similar to its current state. We see two peaks of aridity, one in the 3600s BCE. This is the middle Uruk period when we see what are probably migrations into Susiana and the first Uruk outposts at places like Hajanebi. And we see another peak of dryness between about 3300 and 3100 BCE. This coincides with the collapse of the Uruk network, which we talked about. So these two different dry spells, one at the beginning of the middle Uruk and the other one at the end of the late Uruk, essentially bookend the Uruk period as we know it. 
So the marshes near the coast are drying up. So what used to be a village on a small island surrounded by marsh is now a village on highland surrounded by what is now free dry land. Because the area is largely flat, it's easy to dig canals from a river to this newly dry land which of course makes it easy to irrigate and grow lots of crops on. This is correlated with a population boom. So even though we might expect rudification to cause a decrease in population, it actually opens up new farmland and helps support a growing population. But the water table is dropping, which causes the rivers to slow down. Streams canals become more likely to dry up. And because there's less area for irrigation that relies on natural flooding, now you have to dig more intensive canals to water the same land. So it shouldn't surprise us that we see large-scale labor mobilization kick into high gear around this time. And do you think they were aware that this was happening? Or do you think there was just a steady decrease in kind of the quality of the agriculture over time and they had no idea why? Maybe God's doing it? I, I don't know. I want to say they probably would have figured it out. You know, just because they've been in the same place for thousands of years kind of honing the same farming techniques for the, for a long period of time. And I mentioned that this period, the second dry period between 3300 and 3100, is contemporary with the collapse of the Uruk trade network. This may be why we see them build entire towns outside of the alluvium, for example, at Habuba Kabira, you know, essentially trying to lessen the strain on their local resources by sending people out elsewhere where they can get food from someplace outside alluvial farmland. It's notable that we'll see the period of monumental construction at Unug end around 3100 BCE, after which the Ayana will be torn down and new stuff will be built. Monumental construction? Yeah, big monuments. Like... Cool building stuff that makes a, you know, a big <laughs> building on a big platform that is visible from a long way away. Everyone knows which building is the most important. Hey, that trend has not stopped since. <laughs> yep. Especially um, with giant phalluses. We love those. Oh, yeah. We well, the good news is, those. with clay, with unbaked clay bricks, you can't build that tall of a phallus. So, checkmate. <laughs> <laughs> so, previously, we talked about foraging in the wetlands. It's a huge amount of food. It's in the same place year-round. You, know, you can hunt, you can fish, you can farm, you can herd animals. It's possible to do aquaculture. They may or may not be raising domestic fish already. So as we talked about during the Ubaid period, it's a perfect environment for people transitioning to full-time agriculture in a new area. For this reason, every major settlement is in or near the wetlands, so everyone has access to lots of reeds. As I already mentioned, you can build huts out of them. In modern Iraq, there are some fairly impressive buildings built mostly from reeds. They can also weave them into baskets and mats. But maybe most importantly, reeds are among the only available fuel for fires. So cooking and metallurgy, pottery, etc. All of these are reliant on fire. So again, because you don't have that much lumber that you can chop down for firewood, you have to rely on a very intensive reed trade. So travel by water is older than overland travel. The wheel is invented during the Uruk period. So to travel overland before then, you had to take a donkey or walk. As during the Ubaid period, boats are mostly made out of reeds. They're waterproof with bitumen. Larger boats are made from pine or fir wood. Less often, we see poplar, willow, and palm. And they also use palm fiber rope and leather in the construction of these boats. The earliest archaic texts have an ideogram for ship. Before long, we'll see 40 different words for different types of boat, speaking to a lot of specialized uses. In a 2020 article by Kadim Khanahan, he mentions, quote, Sailing boats, rental boats, store boats, fishing boats, water boats, wine boats, boats for dry bitumen, harbor boats, war boats, vessels which carry grain from the fields, silver transporting boats, grain transporting boats, and boats transporting apples, end quote. Does that give us a good idea of the kind of major industries that were going along? Yeah, I mean, yes. You can look at, you know, boats tied to primary economic production, you know, fishing boats, uh, boats for carrying food, and then you have more specialized commodities. Wine would have had to be imported. Uh, obviously, silver is imported from farther away. Okay, so it's kind of the the local leg of the trade network then. Yeah, exactly. Especially since any commodity that's coming from outside the alluvium is necessarily coming from a place where most travel is done overland. Sure. You know, into the only setting in the region where it makes sense to travel and carry large quantities of commodities 
Yeah, because I guess if you're doing trade by sea and it's most of the Mediterranean is terrible for sailing ships, like even with quite good ships, you still run the risk of losing everything in a storm. You want a person in the front of your boat with a punting pole, which they push against the river floor to push you forward. You want a person in the back with a paddle sticking into the water to use as a rudder to steer. If you have more people, they can row with oars. And if you are taking a very large boat upstream, you might want to get them on the shore with rope to tow your boat upstream. They did also have access to sails. We don't know exactly how that figured into river transport. But ocean-going ships were larger, usually with a wood frame and or a wooden hull. Again, they were cocked with bitumen, and these ships allowed them to trade with the entire Persian Gulf, as far as modern Oman and Pakistan, or the ancient countries of Dilmun, Magan, and Melukha. From the Gulf, they would have imported deepwater fish and probably pearls, and more importantly, copper, and to the extent that they were receiving goods from the Indus Valley civilization by sea instead of overland via Iran, they also would have imported carnelian and lapis lazuli, maybe gold. So let's take a look at climate. In the south, we last left off around 4200 BCE. At the time, summer monsoons in the Indian Ocean reached farther north than they do today. So nutrient-rich water with more oxygen led to more biological diversity and productivity, and people living in the area had access to both fresh and saltwater environments. This monsoon system brought cooler, wetter summers and more cloud cover, so less water evaporated ambiently. This allowed them to plant additional summer crops like sesame and millet. Compared to today's climate, it rained more in the alluvium, including during the summer. It was more temperate with warmer winters and cooler summers. And of course, this made agriculture easier and it led to more grassland for grazing because lots of the areas that are now desert in Iraq would have been grassland. So when we think of camels crossing the dry desert, like tons of dunes, that was all like fertile land at one point? Not all of it, but to the west of Sumer, like in the Syrian desert, as far as we can tell, that was either desert or grassland that could not be irrigated. Okay. So it's not like it was all like jungle or whatever, but it was much easier and more pleasant to travel with a donkey by foot. You know, more okay. temperate, more water, more, you know, more rivers, more grassland and so on. Okay. And just to be pedantic about it, camels were not domesticated until about 900 BC. Which is way, 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 way later. It's... Yeah. So at this point, everyone like is moving. 3,000 years? Yep. Yeah, at this point, pretty much until 2,000 BC or so, everyone is going to be moving at the speed of walking on foot. They might have donkeys to help carry their stuff, but if you want to get a person from one city to another, that person is going to have to walk. Yeah, well, I'm just <laughs> thinking like like modern day folks traveling around deserts. Right. The Arabian Peninsula. Yeah, we talked in episode five about donkeys being better suited for crossing deserts and like drier huh. environments than cattle are. So they had were the donkeys domesticated then? I assume. Yes. Yeah, donkeys kind of took a different track to domestication than like cattle and sheep, mm -hmm. in the sense that they were never intensively bred for specific traits, but they were ubiquitous in Sumerian life and in you know fourth millennium BC life. Oh, okay. And, of course, the two rivers, the Tigris and Euphrates, combined into one big wetland alluvial plain. During this period, the river systems were between 25 and 50 kilometers apart, and they actually joined in places, leading to a single intertwined river system, which made navigation and irrigation very easy. These rivers separated from each other spatially after the Uruk, so by now, the sea level has stabilized. It's not rising anymore. The coast of the Persian Gulf reached farther north and west than it had before, or than it does now. So that's why the coastline is farther out to sea than it was at this point, because it, there's, you know, 6,000 years of depositing more soil at the end of the river where it meets the Gulf Coast. Oh, that's interesting. So we think about like retreating coasts these days, but they were actually expanding coasts? Yes. The same thing happened at both Troy and Thermopylae, is that you know they used to be right by the coast, but over time a bunch of dirt got deposited and uh, now it's miles ah. away from the coast. Very interesting. Yeah. Took thousands of years though, right? True. The water table was higher across the alluvium. 
Shorter river courses combined with a higher water table meant that the rivers meandered more. In other words, they were more likely to overflow their banks and plot a new course across the plain, depositing fresh alluvial soil onto what used to be farmland and what might be farmland again in the future. All of this was great for farming. Please tell me there's a goddess of of rivers hmm. who can personify this because the river sounds like a person right now. Right. She's meandering. She's like just sprinkling a little alluvium here, a little alluvium there, making things fertile. She's spreading around. But I mean, it's just she sounds lovely i want to hang out with her true as far as i know they didn't have a goddess for the rivers per se but the rivers themselves were sometimes personified all right good because the word meandering really caught my imagination yes and the word meander comes from the historical meander river in western anatolia what this also made it easier to irrigate because you could divide fields into units with a level surface and then surround these units with levees creating essentially separate basins that could be flooded or drained. Then you could dig canals to these basins, fill them from the top, you know, the higher ground, and then drain them at the bottom, the lower ground. This is called basin irrigation, and it involves a minimum amount of digging compared to other irrigation styles. During historical periods, we will see lots of labor involved in maintaining irrigation canals, and this might have been to maintain the productivity of fields that were much easier to irrigate a thousand years earlier during the Uruk period. But all this irrigation leads to a huge amount of agricultural productivity. In modern agriculture, irrigated fields are two times more productive than dry farmed fields in the north. In Sumerian records, they appear to have been three times more productive. Irrigated fields have a yield to seed ratio of 30 to 1, so almost four times as much as the ratio in dry farmed fields, which is around 8 to 1. Okay, they just, more of those seeds take and grow as opposed to like only some of them having enough resources in the earth around them to to right. actually have enough energy to pop up and be a whole, a whole being. Yep. Okay, you were comparing to modern farming? Mm-hmm. At one point, well, actually, you know, you said that modern farming is less productive than the Sumerian records indicate. The ratio is lower. We have a lot more tools these days, right. too, right? right? You think that probably made a difference? That is very true. We've got, like, genetically altered seeds. No, right, yeah, right. No. fertilizer, so you never have to let a field go fallow, etc. But without those tools, dry versus wet farming, big, big, big difference. Right. Who knew? Water helps. Also, as I mentioned, the wetlands are much easier to travel through. Unlike in northern Mesopotamia, the environment supports several large settlements near each other. And what was the order? Was it these canals and then cities? Or was it the cities kind of started as these small settlements and then they dug the canals to link them up? Yeah, the settlements would have originally started next to the major rivers, or at least the rivers that would have flooded on a regular basis. You know, over time, the rivers would have changed courses. And then they would have had artificial canals. There was probably one connecting Ur and Al-Ubayid during the Ubayid period. So, you know, probably as soon as we're able to get a good look at the region, they already have connected the natural waterways with artificial canals. Oh, so they were kind of expanding the ones that already existed Mm -hmm. rather than striking out on their own. Okay. Right. That makes more sense. And as soon as you have large political institutions, one of their main roles in maintaining the infrastructure is getting teams of laborers to clear out the canals on a regular basis because over time they silt up. Right, right. And I've learned from you that it's not hard to make a reed canoe. So does that mean that people living along these settlements can just make their own reed canoes and visit outside? How often would you get, do you think you would get people leaving their settlements? Yeah, I mean, definitely to travel nearby. You know, there's no clear-cut evidence of this period, but later on, it's not uncommon to see, you know, minor pilgrimages to nearby temples. That's really interesting because you don't get that all the time. You don't get people able to leave their settlements in the in the bronze age right well that's the thing about about water travel is it's basically free 
Yeah, as uh, industrial England realized when we had our canal systems. Boats are better at carrying weight than people, donkeys, and sledges are. And because everyone is already connected to the rivers because of irrigation for their fields, they're also connected to the rivers as transportation networks. That is extremely smart. Yeah. Wow. I mean, it's it's really fair to think of rivers the way we think of roads. I mean, it's it literally just, right. you know, it's the SNL Californian skit, except about rivers. <laughs> So the annual minimum for rain-fed agriculture, or dry agriculture, is 200 millimeters of rain per year. This is the absolute minimum, so ideally it should be stable over time and closer to 400 millimeters a year. Today, two-thirds of the Fertile Crescent receives between 100 and 200 millimeters, and it rains much less in southern Mesopotamia. Although the Fertile Crescent, by definition, was where it was possible to farm without irrigation during the Neolithic and into the Bronze Age, that is no longer the case. But essentially, because it rains so little in the alluvium, they rely entirely on rivers and irrigation. So because of this, they need to make sure the river doesn't change course. As I mentioned, it's prone to doing because the plain is so flat. In fact, the average slope of this alluvial plain is three centimeters per kilometer. Because of this, the sediment builds up on the riverbed and forces the water out via displacement. And when it does this, as I mentioned, fine alluvial sediment covers the soil and makes it harder to absorb water. So earlier, when the water table was higher, less than two meters under the surface, that higher water table could wash salts out of the soil upriver and deposit it downriver, which would avoid too much salt building up in the soil. But when the water table drops, water in that upper two meters of soil will evaporate. Over time, the salt will build up in that topsoil, eventually causing crop failure. Not all salts harm crops, but certain chlorides and carbonates are toxic. The river is salty? I thought rivers are freshwater. Rivers are freshwater, but the soil upstream washes into the water, and it has salts in it. Okay. And if you, you know, if you keep washing the soil into your canals over and over and over again, it's going to get salty. Okay, that's fair. Speaking of crops, their staple crop, of course, was barley. In episode 13, we talked in general terms about grain and the state. Now we have some of the records to be able to get specific. So essentially, there are a few reasons why all states are organized around one to two staple crops. Cereals, like barley, are calorically dense, and they have a long shelf life. Their grains are small, so a large amount of them can be subdivided any number of ways. Because it's an annual crop, the harvest is predictable, and because it grows above ground, it is hard to hide from the authorities, and it's easy to supervise its harvest. So from the administrative perspective, the amount of arable land in their economy corresponds to their economy's expected grain output. They had an entire economic and political system for allocating labor to farmland so that their scribes could basically guess, given X amount of farmland, that it would produce Y amount of grain. And this huge amount of grain gave them the ability to plan ahead, in other words, to allocate rations for workers building future construction projects. So rations, bricks, and records were all standardized. By streamlining the process of growing grain, they could streamline every other state process. So during the Uruk, we have no text with details on agriculture, just records of inflow and outflow of barley. So for example, we have no way to know about rotation versus mixed cultivation, and even when we have archaeobotanical remains, we don't know what season they were planted in. This is just complete speculation, but uh, crop rotation is obviously quite a, quite a sophisticated agricultural technique. Mm -hmm. um, so that may be a bit much to uh, speculate that they'd uh, developed by then. But I almost feel like leaving a field fallow mm -hmm. um, for a season is pretty basic, and most societies stumble upon that after a few poor harvests. In my personal idea of what was going on, they were, do they were leaving a field fallow every season. Yeah, and it makes sense. You know, you can plant clover and have sheep graze. Yeah, exactly. We also don't have any texts explaining labor organization to us. Probably most agricultural labor was organized around traditional kinship or village land. It's possible that already at this point, large temples were using labor teams to work their temple estates. We have evidence of that from Kish around 2700 BCE, when war prisoners are put to work on date palm plantations. So there was a sophisticated 
land division system then? I mean, that's quite interesting because that's kind of the basis of the legal system mm -hmm. in a lot of societies. Yeah, land sales. Primarily, the state wants to keep track of where all the land is and where all the weed is being grown, wheat, barley, etc., so that it can tax it. So, of course, they're still using this basic Neolithic package. The alluvium is focused on barley, which they use to make beer and bread. Of course, they grow legumes like peas, lentils, chickpeas, fava beans, grass peas, and vetch. Flax is the earliest agricultural source of fibers, as well as linseed oil. All of these form the basic Neolithic package. Every rural household would have had some combination of these. All of these would have been possible to collect and tribute on a traditional agricultural schedule, planted in the autumn and harvested at the end of spring. As far as orchards, date palms were an early import from the Arabian Peninsula, possibly during the Ubayid period. They also grew apples, figs, and apricots, as well as almonds and pistachios. As I mentioned, the Tigris and Euphrates flood at the exact wrong time. Most precipitation in the mountains falls during winter. That snow melts in April and May, augmented by local rain. But when you're farming on the Neolithic schedule, you want to plant in late autumn and harvest in late spring, which means you need to store water for months and then water fields regularly from your stored water. So plows pulled by oxen would have been common by the mid-3000s. You could use these to break up the soil in the autumn. Plows appear in seals around this time, and texts refer to both plows and plow teams. This multiplies the amount of land that one person can cover, which of course means that they can maximize the amount of food they produce. Would you like a diversion about plowing, which you can feel free to cut out? I feel like this is a relatively known theory, but I'm, I'm pretty sure there's a theory that with the introduction of plowing, that's when you get a big division of labor according to gender. And that's when you start to see big differentiation um, for the first time. I mean, obviously, this is quite controversial because we just don't know about the division of labor in hunter-gatherer societies. But some people think that there was not a huge division of labor in hunter-gatherer societies. And it only started when plowing became a thing because it's very physical. And it wasn't, I mean, hunting, you think that's very physical. But, you know, it may have been endurance hunting. So women can keep up jogging and doing all that. Whereas the plowing is, um, is quite concentrated in the upper body specifically, where women tend to have less muscle. Yeah, this is human. Oh, human play. Okay, okay, that makes sense. Because I did yeah, hear yeah. that, and I also heard that once you have a society where men are out in the field supervising livestock pulling plows, means that, you know, the man is essentially not doing that much physical work with his body. Whereas, you know, w women are still weaving yeah. in the same way they had been, which cannot be mechanized in the same way. And, you know, you can't outsource it to an animal. So, you know, women are essentially yeah. doing the same amount of physical labor, and men are kind of just standing there. <laughs> but reaping all the all the kind of like <laughs> reward from all of the agriculture. I think animal done plowing is still quite difficult. But yeah, I, do, I don't think it would prevent anyone from being able to do it. I think it's hard work, but it's not too, too strength intensive. Oh, that's fair. I guess I don't know exactly what it entails. But um, obviously, I did not grow up in the Bronze Age or the Stone Age working on a farm with my ox. So citation needed. <laughs> Same. We don't know if they were using copper or bronze sickles. If they were, they probably would have been recycled, because metal was valuable at the time. We do know they were still using ceramic sickles, which they had inherited from the Ubaid period. And we have evidence of ox-pulled threshing carts to separate the grain from the chaff after they've been harvested. Way back in episode 3, I mentioned summer crops. Traditionally, summer was the off-season for agriculture. You would be busy with farm work between about September and June. But once all your grain was processed and stored, you would have a couple months to do other stuff. This is probably when individual farmers are drafted for labor projects. So during the 3000s, we see the rise of summer cultivation. 
or working during this traditional off-season. So, of course, this causes more overall productivity, but, of course, it really sucks to work in the summer, especially in Mesopotamia. This is partially enabled by more sophisticated irrigation. As I mentioned, the fact that the river floods in the springtime is perfect for summer crops, but the entire irrigation system, since the Ubaid period, has been set up to dam those floods. So once you have institutions with more power over more land, this gives them the ability to juggle both spring and summer cropping. By the 2000s BCE, sesame will be common as a summer crop. This is sown in spring and harvested in summer. It was originally domesticated in India, which has a monsoon climate, where most rain falls in the summer. Sesame appears in many different contexts, not just in storage, which would be the case if it was only imported. Also, I don't know um, if there were any other sources of oil that were as available but I know at least in the, the Roman period, we probably don't put enough emphasis on olive oil. I think by some counts, it was maybe a third of uh, the average person's daily diet, the calories in it. Yeah, so um, I don't know if that's the case with sesame at all, but uh, there are parallels potentially with it being a really, really important part of daily life. Huh. Yeah, I mean, for sure, linseed oil from flax, apparently genetically like the genetic markers to control oil production are older and more diverse than the ones that control fiber production. So flax may have been originally domesticated for oil before it was used for fibers. I thought that was really interesting. Along with sesame, we see other summer crops like sorghum, millet, and safflower, introduced from other regions with other climates during the Uruk period. So now to look at the process of state formation in Uruk period Mesopotamia. We've already seen the process by which individual households are accumulating authority over food, storage, and long-distance trade. We've been introduced to Ubaid public buildings, which are essentially conceived of as large household-type institutions that coordinate the economic activities of an entire community, probably ritual and cultural activities as well. So today, we're going to see those public buildings grow into Uruk temples, which become the organs of the first states in southern Mesopotamia. So, the concept of a state is hard to define. There are definitely no states before or during the Neolithic. And Sumerian city-states in the 2000s BC are definitely states. So whatever changed, it seems to have happened in the 3000s BCE. The traditional definition of a state looks something like an organized society with a sovereign government and the power to make and enforce laws within a definite territory. In 1918, Max Weber defined the state as, quote, a human community that successfully claims the monopoly of the legitimate use of physical force within a given territory, end quote. In 1884, Friedrich Engels wrote that economic development, in other words, the rise of political and social complexity, led to the growth of different classes with opposing and irreconcilable political interests, and the conflict between these new social classes threatened to tear society apart. So, quote, a power apparently standing above society became necessary to moderate the conflict and keep it within the bounds of quote-unquote order. And this power, arisen out of society, but placing itself above it and increasingly alienating itself from it, is the state, end quote. In 2017, James C. Scott defined states as, quote, Institutions that have strata of officials specialized in the assessment and collection of taxes, whether in grain, labor, or specie, and who are responsible to a ruler or rulers, end quote. He defines a ruler as someone, quote, exercising executive power in a fairly complex, stratified, hierarchical society with an appreciable division of labor, weavers, artisans, priests, metalworkers, clerks, soldiers, cultivators, end quote. And he offers as a more stringent definition, quote, a state should have an army, defensive walls, a monumental ritual center or palace, and perhaps a king or queen, end quote. In 2000, Mitchell Rothman defined a state as a society with a centralized political authority, plus, quote, at least three hierarchical levels of full-time institutionalized administrators who oversee essential functions, end quote. And as examples of those functions, he gives, quote, production of goods, staple storage, infrastructure maintenance, for example, irrigation canals, religious ritual, long-distance trade, and warfare, end quote. So Mitchell Rothman talks about a dual economy in these early Mesopotamian cities. One half of the economy centered on the great institutions, like these temples and later palaces, where the sole aim of the officials who run them is the continued hierarchical authority of those institutions. And the other half of the economy 
centers on citizens of the state who have technically equal status as a member of the community of the city-state. They may have some kind of assembly, in other words, some kind of deliberative body representing the citizenry of the city-state. In 2005, Giorgio Butrilotti wrote that, quote, the state embodies, one, the systematic articulation of power throughout the social group, two, supported by a capillary system of public administration, and three, resting on institutional permanence, end quote. So in other words, the state exists in relation to a social group, not just a physical settlement, and power has to be exercised via permanent mechanisms, you know, not those based on a single personality or a person's charisma. So for our purposes, state authority is institutional and impersonal. They have control of a large amount of labor. They are able to collect and redistribute goods and resources, and they're run by bureaucrats filling an administrative institutional role. So in a 2001 paper, Guillermo Algaze paraphrases Jane Jacobs, who compares human communities to biological ecosystems, both of which develop specialized niches over time, no pun intended about the architectural niches. Essentially, the similarities between both are that more diverse systems are more stable and resilient. In both cases, their expansion depends on capturing and using external resources, you know, resources external to the entities that are expanding. The more diverse ways they find to use the same amount of resources, the more they can grow, and the more complex interactions they have with other entities, the more new properties emerge that wouldn't have if they weren't all interacting with each other. So the form that societies take as they grow is dependent on a combination of factors, like geography, environment, and trade. All of this determines the opportunities for ambitious people and groups within a society to find new external resources or form new external relationships with people outside that current ecosystem. So in terms of a literal ecosystem, we've talked about how Southern Mesopotamia is quantitatively different from the rest of Mesopotamia. It has a much higher agricultural productivity, it can support much larger and more dense settlements, and those settlements can grow much more complex because of the amount of interaction between large nearby settlements that you can have in the alluvium that you couldn't have at, for example, Tel Brock, which we remember Tel Brock was the only large site in its area. There were some big sites outside the alluvium, but these were generally the outliers. In other words, they were not enmeshed in a system of other big sites the way that alluvial cities were. And as we talked about it in the last episode, part of this is because of water transport. Compared to walking, water transport is infinitely more efficient. You can move people, goods, and information much faster that way. During the Pottery Neolithic, extended households became the unit of social interaction, often across large distances. So as the traditional Neolithic village broke apart, both the social institution of larger families and the architectural institution of larger physical homes for them to live in spread across the Near East. So of course, what these households are engaged with on a day-to-day -day basis is domestic production. In other words, growing food and making tools and clothes and so on for their own daily use and for sharing with family, friends, neighbors, and so on. You know, other households that are also engaged in domestic production, but on more or less the same scale that you are sharing more or less freely with your neighbors. There is not really kind of dominance or tribute being collected. In a 2012 paper, Max Hyped defined this type of domestic production thus, quote, no products are continuously withdrawn from the system to maintain primary, biological, and secondary, economical reproduction, intervillage and inter-household coalitions are being established, end quote. In other words, obviously households don't exist in a vacuum, you know, they're surrounded by a village usually, and they're enmeshed in networks of trade, migration, marriage, and so on. But even though they're not using and consuming all they make and vice versa, you know, they are still trading on a local level, they are trading with other households farther apart, and they're not really making anything for any reason other than daily life. They're not growing food, except so that they or someone nearby can eat. They're not making clothes for anyone else to wear, etc., etc. So, you know, the people who are making the stuff decide how to use it and how to share it. And back in episode 15, we talked about different ways that communities can maintain their social egalitarian relations over time. So one good idea, if the village is getting too big and starting to tend towards complexity and centralized authority, some people can leave and start their own town. Max Hype suggests that this might happen when the walk to your fields gets longer than 1.5 kilometers, or about one mile. So we suggest that this would be a maximum of about 800 people in a town about five hectares. 
basically if your town is bigger than 800 people if it's stretching more than five hectares or if you have to walk more than 1.5 kilometers to your fields it might be time for some group of people to split off and start their own community so that you can preserve your small egalitarian village life and preserve your easy commute but of course the two major disruptions to this kind of egalitarian village life were irrigation which vastly improved the amount of grain that people could grow with the addition of intensive labor basically and the other was these extended families that we talked about so hypothetically, through a clever series of marriage relations, trade relations, etc., individual households could accumulate more connections than others, which means that one particular household would have more people to work on its irrigation, which means that that one household would have much more productive agriculture than other nearby households might. So again, questions of ownership aside, assuming that one household got all these people to dig ditches for it, to grow a lot of grain for it, you know, now that particular household controls a much larger amount of grain than any other household in its area. And this is one way that these individual household units can move towards institutional power. So we've been talking about public buildings this whole time. During Ubaid, these public buildings are often called temples. They were built on the same tripartite plan as domestic houses, but bigger. So they're probably conceived of as a household of a god. Increasingly, they were also in charge of storage, you know, especially grain, but also other trade goods. They used administrative tools, like stamp seals and tokens and so on, to control the flow of goods in and out of the temple. And of course, later on, we will see these administrative tools grow to encompass cylinder seals, numerical tablets, and the first writing. These public buildings are often distinguished by architecture. You know, they often stand on top of a tall monumental platform, making them taller and more visible from farther away. It's like, well, I'm not just an important guy. I'm an important guy who got a bunch of people to build them a big office. A big penis monument. No, exactly. <laughs> Not yet, not yet. We don't have the tools for that yet. We haven't reached that point of achievement in human history. <laughs> Build me a clay brick chode. <laughs> they often have niched or buttressed recessed walls, as well as decorations like big clay horns and clay mosaic cones stuck in plaster to kind of create a pictorial pattern in the wall. And often they have a symmetrical layout, which shows that their builders had an understanding of geometry. There is a possible intermediate step between households and temples, you know, these big public institutions, We've already talked about that. It's the fact that a public building might have been the domestic household of a chief. So in other words, the physical home of the chief's family might have also been responsible for public storage and administration, according to the flow of goods in and out of their household, and feeding the hungry, coordinating labor projects, and so on. There is some debate on when, where, and whether this step existed. Some people say it existed in the north, but not the south, etc. Either way, by the late Ubayid period in southern Mesopotamia, we see large temples on monumental platforms that are decorated with wall niches and mosaic cones, and so on. Especially, we see these at Eridu and Ur. So for most of the Ubaid period in the Alluvium, there were a handful of towns with monumental temple architecture, those towns being home to a population of a couple thousand, and these larger towns would be surrounded by undifferentiated agricultural villages, which were incorporated into these towns' economies, but you certainly couldn't call them part of a unified state yet. By the end of the Ubaid period, in the late 4000s, a few villages in the Alluvium became major centers. We saw a handful of sites around 10 hectares, including Eridu. This is one of the major signs of complexity and social differentiation before the Uruk. And of course, these larger towns not only have more people in them, but they also have more intensive agriculture. They have more extensive administrative control over the flow of goods. They have longer reaching trade connections. They have more complete labor differentiation. So one of the major trends we see during the Uruk period is the growth of major cities on or near the coast, like Unug, Ur, Uma, and Larsa. Near the coast, the floods would be less severe than they would be in the northern Uluvium, so it would be easier to maintain canals. And they'd be connected by boat to the Persian Gulf and the sea trade, and they'd be able to go a fair ways north in their boats. So during the Uruk, the number of sites increases, which is a sign of massive population growth. There are many new places where people are living, and we begin to see a settlement hierarchy. So, you know, big cities, towns, villages, and hamlets. So during the early Uruk period, before about 3800 BCE, this is the first time that a majority of the population lived in cities or towns over 10 hectares. We have city folk and country folk. You have the majority of people living in cities or large towns. Ah, yeah. Because generally, the vast majority of the population is farmers. And, you know, there are some small cities uh, just in world history. Right, for like trade and... Yeah. Um, but you only visit them occasionally. You don't live in them. 
Right. So essentially, this is the same time as the heyday of Telbrock in the north and the south. We see these kind of proto-city-states forming. By the late Uruk period, again, 3400 to 3100 BCE, in the kind of north-central alluvium, containing the cities of Nippur and Adab, 70% of people live in urban areas. And in the Uruk region, in the southern alluvium, that number is about 60% of people living in urban areas. So we just moved into city-states as opposed to what? Yeah, smaller agricultural towns and networks and so on. Is that why you're excited about the Uruk period? That and talk right, about it? You know, getting to oh, talk right, about stuff yes. from records and stuff. Smaller villages and hamlets continue existing and new ones are founded. But increasingly, these are dependent to larger cities, supplying them with agriculture and labor. In other words, they are increasingly integrated into the urban economy and no longer their own small autonomous settlements. So Zipf's law. Z-I-P-F's law. Zipf. Zipf's. Yeah. Zipf's. Zipf's. Yeah. Is a statistical law that applies to a lot of situations. But in archaeology, it says that each level of settlement hierarchy should be about two times as big as the next level down. So what this means is that on average, the biggest city will be about twice the size of the next biggest cities, which themselves will be about twice as big as the next biggest towns and so on. Especially that you're not going to find a large area where you have one hundred hectare town and then a 90 hectare town, and then an 80 hectare town, and so on. You know, you're probably going to have one big 100 hectare city, and then the next biggest city you'll find will be 50 hectares, and so on, all the way down. But during the late Uruk period, Unug is over four times the size of any known city in the area. So is that why the Uruk time is, is named after the city? It's just so big, it's the most salient feature of the time? Yes, it is the biggest city by far, and pro- like as far as we can tell, it's the place where writing was invented. Okay, oh, that's pretty flippin' cool. Yeah, we have hundreds or thousands of proto-cuneiform tablets from the Ayana in Unug, which is probably the like the, you know the the office complex where it was invented. <laughs> the office complex where language oh, yeah. was invented. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> you know, because you have temples for worship and you have big monumental stuff, and you also have just like you know offices for bureaucrats. We already mentioned that Eridu is about 40 hectares, as is Tel al-Hayad, which might be the ancient city of Larak. So what we're missing is a city that is half the size of Unug. Guillermo al-Ghazi suggested this might be Uma in the kind of south-central alluvium. We have a lot of looted tablets, similar to the late Uruk writing style, that might be from Uma. The site of Uma is still being excavated, so there's a lot of information that won't be published for a while. What do you mean by looted? Like, like we see a placeholder for them and they're not there? Or like, wow, that looks like a tablet where it should be, but it's gone. It's been looted. <laughs> well, it basically, instead of being excavated by archaeologists and, you know, where it comes from is documented and all that, it was excavated by people trying to profit. A non-professional thieves. Well, I mean, professional because they got, we know they got paid for it because they showed up at the antiquities market. Oh, I was making a joke about archaeologists being thieves. Never mind. Oh, that's, oh, that's also fair. Okay, I see. So, we ha- so we're able to see the tablets, but we don't have any context for them because they were originally taken by non-archaeologists. Right. Yeah. yeah. So we can tell by the style of writing when, when they come from, just not where. Okay. So overall population density in the Alluvium was more or less constant throughout the Uruk period, but the number of villages declined which shows a migration to towns and cities, especially Unug. So in other words, if you look at the alluvium as a whole, more or less the same number of people lived there, but just that over time they got more concentrated in larger towns and cities. People were also probably migrating to the alluvium from outside. So population seems to have declined in northern Mesopotamia, in the Jazeera Plains in northern Iraq, also the Susiana Plain after the middle Uruk period, as well as the Fars Plain in southwestern Iran, home to later Anshan. So this might be because of escalating warfare, you know, prisoners, refugees, and slaves captured in warfare by Uruk powers and brought back to the Alluvium. Which is all very familiar. No, yeah. In a lot of ways, the Uruk period is when history starts to look like history. Right. This just makes me think of Roman Empire. No, exactly. Like city-states and prisoners of war and... 
The whole deal. Yep. It might be the ideological pole of the temple. If everyone agrees that this is the holiest site on earth, maybe they would do good to move there. And of course, this might be related to changing climate. If you can no longer grow crops where you live, you might want to move to this big city where you know that you'll be able to work for steady rations. And of course, these big cities are bigger pools of consumers and exploitable labor, which leads to self-sustaining growth. So essentially, if you need a whole lot of people to do stuff in the city, the city is constantly taking in grain to feed all the people that you want to do stuff for you. And if you see the city primarily as a market for the goods you're producing, the good news is that tens of thousands of people live in the city and new people are constantly moving to the city and a sucker is born every minute. So as we talked about back in the Tell Brock episode, there are some issues with living in big cities. You know, you have contact with lots of people and animals. There are tens of thousands of people in the Unug metro area, and they're constantly interacting with many other areas. So people have lots of reasons to visit the city or pass through the city, lots of which involve bringing animals. Of course, people and animals are vectors for diseases. To their credit, clay drainage pipes are invented during the Uruk period, and we see toilets not long afterwards. So Unug is probably more sanitary than Chatlaharyuk. What are the pipes made out of? Clay. I mean, they had to, you said that they had to import anything that's metal. Yeah, so baked clay. But did they, oh, baked clay. Oh, um, yeah, so we see toilets during the 2000s BC. You know, they, they are figuring out what to do with, you know, redirecting liquids and so on. <laughs> right alongside the invention of language, toilets. Yeah, I did literally, yes. But of course, you still have lots of humans and animals in a confined space with no understanding of germ theory. And of course, stagnant water and food storage are also potential vectors for disease. There's like a whole thing about how like the first guy who... who oh yeah, Ignat <laughs> Semmelweis. Told, uh, told everyone that they needed to wash their hands was like, cons- yeah, it was considered to be totally nuts. Yeah, exactly. And, like, the original <laughs> version of that was to have like a like a weak solution of bleach and just to dip your hands in it. Yep. And that was very recent. That is very true. I'll go, I guess, and that's Western culture, so maybe there's a necessarily a truth for the whole world, I don't know. Maybe there's a perspective to be had here, unsure. Like, there are some ritual kinds of washings that probably did help clean hands and stuff, but... Right, if you you have, like, if your hands are visibly dirty, visibly soiled, as we say in the health field... So, of course, during the Uruk, these new huge cities with more complex economies are able to grow because they establish tribute relationships outside their immediate area. As we talked about, we might be able to see the Uruk expansion as a large-scale tribute network. Either way, these new cities have huge amounts of goods and people moving through them. More goods create more jobs for artisans and skilled craft workers. The migration brings in new family members, co-workers, neighbors, slaves from elsewhere, etc. All of which create more complex economic relationships with foreigners. So, you know, we've been talking a lot about households and the kind of reorganization of the Neolithic village into specific households that occurred during the Pottery Neolithic. So now we're looking at a new type of social reorganization. So, you know, now that society has gotten so large and complex and interconnected that you have tens of thousands of people living in one place, the traditional logic of kinship and family will become insufficient. So you need a new type of organization to get all these people to believe that they're all in the same boat. You know, that could be social, political, and or ideological. Quote James Scott again, quote, On one hand, groups of priests, strongmen, and local chiefs were scaling up and institutionalizing structures of power that had previously used only the idioms of kinship. On the other hand, thousands of cultivators, artisans, traders, and laborers were being, as it were, repurposed as subjects, and, to this end, counted, taxed, conscripted, put to work, and subordinated to a new form of control, end quote. So you know, they wouldn't have had a concept of a state or a kingdom yet, and most of them probably had no idea what a city was. So in other words, when you live in a small, rural, homogenous group, it's easy to believe that you all share one mythical ancestor. But, of course, these large urban societies are incorporating people from all kinds of different ecosystems, you know, the plains, the mountains, the wetlands, the Persian Gulf, etc. And, of course, they're getting larger, more diverse, more stratified. You know, you can't easily use the language of kinship for someone who speaks a different language, who just migrated here from a totally different area not that long ago. You know, increasingly, as more and more people are enslaved, it's hard to justify slavery within the language of kinship. So now you need new, different types of collective identity. And one of the major vehicles for that will be the temples, 
which of course can create a mythological narrative connecting the beginning of time and the creation of the world to the creation of modern social roles. And of course, you and 10,000 other people worshiping the same God in the same temple can give you a shared sense of purpose and a shared worldview. And of course, that's reinforced by temple feasts and other redistributive events. Eating with other people can help inculcate a group identity, and it helps they have access to both beer and wine. So earlier I mentioned Max Hyped and his conception of domestic production. He contrasts that with a new type called the tributary mode of production. So this is a new type of economic organization that grows out of domestic production. He defines tribute as, quote, the transfer of products from the producer household to a superior institution, end quote. And that institution can be a chief's household or a public building or a temple or a palace or something like that. So tribute is a fundamentally unequal relationship. Although that institution might provide you certain benefits, you know, gathering surplus in case of famine, organizing rations for big work projects that enable agriculture and so on, you know, building walls to protect you from invaders, also feasts, conducting trade, storing goods to be traded later, and so on. Still, though, it is entrenching a permanent kind of inequality. Households never get back 100% of what they pay into the institution. And unlike domestic production, this is an unequal form of exchange, creating a permanent and growing surplus controlled by the institution that is necessarily separated from domestic production. So, you know, even though a good chunk of this is created by individual domestic households, this larger social institution has the power to tax a certain percentage of it, or just a flat amount of it, and that will allow the surplus controlled by the institution to grow indefinitely, and the share of goods controlled by individual households proportionally will shrink. Max Hyped writes, quote, If tribute is being extracted by some households continuously, production and consumption units drift apart. The production unit is expanding beyond single households, whereas consumption stays within the household, end quote. So, for example, regular households are forced to produce more to meet tribute demands, whereas the households receiving tribute, again, public buildings, temples, and so on, are all conceived of as larger households, you know, extensions of the concept of a household. These larger institutional households receive tribute, which means they don't have to produce as much to meet basic subsistence demands. All of this was true before the Uruk period. We've talked about this process in episode 13 and episode 15, but this process is scalable. Increasingly, households are subordinated to a local administrative center, and entire villages are subordinated to nearby towns. And of course, increasingly, towns are being subordinated to large urban centers with large monumental temples, with huge armies of bureaucrats taking record of all kinds of stuff. Again, this is part of an ongoing process that we've been covering on and off throughout season two. So state formation is intimately connected with the process of commoditization. Both processes rely on the same organizational and ideological framework. Because they're basically receiving sustenance from the external community, these larger institutional households can focus on more intensive production, whether that be on temple estates, where they grow grain, or whether that be other types of craft production. So we're going to talk about the process of commoditization, which in other words is the large-scale production of goods for trade rather than just goods for use. And increasingly, that will be done by these large state institutions. So... Let's look at some definitions first off. Creating goods for consumption, for their use value, if you will. You know, this is making stuff to be consumed in the short term by people nearby you or in your same social class. You know, growing barley to make bread for dinner or raising sheep to shear them to make clothes. You can share this stuff freely with your family. We've talked about this. And, you know, on a larger institutional scale, you know, the institution can grow grain to feed its own workers. That's for short-term consumption. But increasingly, the state institutions are also producing things for exchange. So, you know, we're still in a pre-monetary economy. There's not really a barter system as such. Instead, the amount of goods exchanged is determined by political relations. Exchange is a reflection of those relations, not the other way around. So it's possible that, for example, a temple might produce a hundred of a certain type of pot to store a certain type of oil to send to a different town as part of a pre-existing economic agreement. Essentially, it's being exchanged for other goods or services or religious obeisance or whatever. And a commodity is a specific type of good with an intrinsic exchange value. So again, it's not being produced directly for subsistence. It's being traded to a different party as part of a social exchange. And again, not so that the entity producing it can eat. So these commodities are created for and exchanged in an institutionalized system of trade and traded by people not involved in primary production. 
So crucially, the agent of the temple who's traveling to a different settlement to facilitate these exchanges is not at all involved in producing the goods being exchanged. You know, they are employed by the institution that supervises the production of those goods. But again, it's a large, complicated process that many people not involved in production are participating in. So some things that don't count as commodities are tax and tribute, because those aren't really exchanged so much as just given from one party to another. You know, it's less of an exchange and more of just a transfer of objects. Gifts also don't count because they're supposed to be one-off objects and not produced in quantities to have an intrinsic exchange value, because that applies that they would be fungible, which often with gifts, the point is that it is not fungible. Similar logic with priceless ritual items, some of which were worshipped in Mesopotamia as holy objects. So, you know, gifts are also high-value items, but the point of giving gifts is to strengthen social relationships. The same with tribute, you know, whether that social relationship is between equals or between you and your ruling institution, the object is a means to an end, not produced entirely for exchange of goods. So the process of commoditization is the process by which particular types of goods take on social value. Again, no prices yet, but when an object has greater value, that is motivation to accumulate more of them or to produce more of them for exchange to receive other goods of value. And when a temple has centralized hordes of stuff, that can give it a competitive advantage. So, you know, we can think of food, especially if everyone is starving and you have all the food, you can make people do whatever you want. And to a lesser extent, that's also true with obsidian and lapis lazuli. You know, if you have something that people want, you get to dictate the terms on which you trade that thing away. This kind of long-term hoarding is unheard of in societies based on kinship. And competition between institutions and social groups can lead to increased demand for luxury goods. So in other words, if the chief the next town over has a fancy obsidian object that everyone is impressed by, you might want to expand your trade networks to see if you can acquire some fancy obsidian objects so that people will be impressed by you too. So from the first to the second phase of writing, so the shift happening around 3100 BCE, we see a shift away from categorizing goods by use. So increasingly, the symbol for a certain type of product is a variation on the symbol for that category. So, you know, there's one sign for a type of jar, and then that sign will be slightly modified to indicate what is inside the jar. You know, this is the case for grains, beverages, metal objects, stone objects, and so on, all of which are fungible and have a long shelf life. So Mitchell Rothman writes, quote, Scribes did not view the goods as fulfilling direct uses, but as convenient means of storage, transport, purchase of work, service, later, or trade, end quote. All of which leads to, quote, an economic system for the collection and exchange of goods, end quote. So again, the scribes didn't make these things. They're not going to be using these things. They're just there to record their movement in and out of this institution. So it's not the scribe's job to understand the intrinsic qualities of any of these objects or products. They view them as objects to be counted and shipped off in large quantities to other areas. Of course, no goods are being produced for sale yet. Again, no money yet. But we do have all the parts of what will later become a commodity situation. We have administrative control over productive labor. We have administrative storage and redistribution of goods on a large scale. And we have formalized exchange networks. So commoditization is tied up with the rise of the state, both of which accompany a major shift in individual and group identities. Earlier, we had a farmer producing goods for short-term use. Now we have workers producing commodities that they will never use and that even the institution that is employing them will never use, but instead will trade elsewhere. So by the Uruk period, like I said, the urban economy has two sectors. One of which are the elite institutions, like temples and palaces, which are professional hierarchies with an interest in maintaining power. And of course, the other one are the common citizens of the city, connected to their own traditional kinship networks, and increasingly bound together by their common identity as citizens of the city. Both halves produce goods for their own practical use, but they use their goods differently. Rothman says, quote, For a commodity situation to evolve, an interaction between the two poles must emerge, in which production for exchange and a shift in the perception of goods occurs. We don't have any evidence that these temple estates, on which they're growing grain for their own uses, are big enough to meet all of their redistribution needs by themselves. So in other words, they rely on domestic production of grain to collect as tax slash tribute in order to meet their own budget needs. 
and they probably don't have enough people enslaved to fulfill all of their needs as far as infrastructure, you know, digging canals, building buildings, fighting wars. And the relationship between these two sectors of the economy, institutions and the people, can create new types of exchange. So no people who are not on the permanent temple payroll can work for rations, as I've been saying. And at least in later periods, the temple can award offices or land to people in return for their service to the temple, which is a way for the temple to turn land that it owns into services provided by someone external to the temple, who then becomes incorporated into the temple apparatus. Because it's not like the temple gives them the land and then forgets about it. The land is still recorded by the temple bureaucracy, at least in later periods. It's worked by workers, supervised by the temple. And, you know, this increasing exchange of goods and services for wealth, like land, livestock, grain, and so on, is certainly a step in the development of a monetary commodity economy. So that is that on state formation for now. So, to return to the debate between Ho and Plow. So previously, Ho was in the middle of telling Plow why it's better. Ho gets about three times as many lines. Usually the authors of these debate texts have an obvious favorite. So Ho continues. I am the Ho and I live in the city. No one is more honored than I am. I am a servant following his master. I am one who builds a house for his master. I am one who broadens the cattle stalls, who expands the sheepfolds. I press clay and make bricks. I lay foundation and build a house. I strengthen an old wall's base. I put a roof on a good man's house. I am the Ho. I straighten the town squares. When I have gone through the city and built its sturdy walls, have made the temples of the great gods splendid, and embellished them with brown, yellow, and decorative clay, I build in the city of the palace, where the inspectors and overseers live. When the weakened clay has been built up and the fragile clay buttressed, they refresh themselves when the time is cool in houses I have built. When they rest on their sides by a fire, which a hoe has stirred up, you do not come to the joyous celebration. They feed the laborer, give him drink, and pay him his wages. Thus, I have enabled him to support his wife and children. I make a kiln for the boatman, and heat pitch for him. By fashioning Magar and Magellum boats for him, I enable the boatman to support his wife and children. I plant a garden for the householder. When the garden has been encircled, surrounded by mud walls and the agreements reached, people again take up a hoe. When a well has been dug, a water lift constructed and a water hoist hung, I straighten the plots. I am the one who puts water in the plots. After I have made the apple tree grow, it is I who bring forth its fruits. These fruits adorn the temples of the great gods. Thus, I enable the gardener to support his wife and children. After I have worked on the watercourse and the sluices, put the path in order and built a tower there on its banks, those who spend the day in the fields and the field workers who match them by night go up into that tower. These people revive themselves there, just as in their well-built city. The water skins I made, they used to pour water. I put life into their hearts again. When I have dug out the fresh water for the plain and dry land where no water is, those who have thirst refresh themselves at my wellhead. What then does one person say to another? What does one tell another in detail? After the heavens had been turned upside down, after bitter lament had been imposed on Sumer, after houses were overwhelmed by the rivers and Enlil frowned in anger upon the land, Enlil had flooded the harvest. After Enlil had acted mightily thus, Enlil did not abandon us. The single-toothed hoe was struck against the dry earth. For us, you raise winter like the harvest time. We take away the hand of summer and winter. Ho, the binder, ties the sheaves. Binding bird traps, it ties the reed baskets. The solitary laborer and the destitute are supported. They glean the scattered ears. 
Then Enlil intervenes. He's the god of kingship and the wind, which is why he's called the storm in this text. He tells them to stop fighting, and then he picks a winner. Then the storm spoke. A mortar lies still where the pestle pounds. People fight with grinding stones. The seed disputes with the strainer. What have you done to the one who is angry? Why are you scornful of Azena? Why do you swap insults over the ripened grain? Why, plow, is the ripened grain in your seeding funnel? So here Enlil references some units of silver. One mana, later called a mina, is around 500 grams, or a little over one pound. This is equivalent to 60 gin, or ging. This is a unit later called a shekel. One gin is about eight grams, or less than one-third of an ounce. Enlil addressed the hoe. Ho, do not start getting so mightily angry. Do not be so mightily scornful. Is not Nisaba the hoe's inspector? Is not Nisaba its overseer? The scribe will register your work. He will register your work. Ho, whether he enters five or ten ging in your account, ho, or ho, whether he enters one-third or one-half mana in your account, ho, like a maidservant, always ready, you will fulfill your task. You know, I just imagine that Enlil would be this kind of angry guy. He's stormy, no, exactly. you know, so he's he's like, honestly, a Sumerian version of Zeus, yeah, yeah. In, in a sense, and feel like he would talk like Darth Vader. Or <laughs> Copyright. <laughs> no, I mean, I feel like there's a good argument to be made that Enlil is literally like the same god as Zeus, just, you know, across mm. the time and space. This text is somewhat unique in that it calls him the storm. Generally, in these kinds of Sumerian literary texts, the storm god is Ishkor, mm. who's a, like, minor god. But there was a much stronger tradition of storm gods in the Semitic tradition, mm -hmm. which by the time most of these were written, you know, most of the people writing them spoke a Semitic language as their first language. Mm. So there's probably the influence of gods like, you know, Hadad and Baal and those guys mm -hmm. on the Sumerian memories. Okay, so in this epic rap battle of history yes, no, between, I mean, between the Ho and yes, the Plow, yes. right? You know, we, we essentially have to go over this one more time, but like, so does Enlil essentially declare the Ho as the, as the winner? It seems like he's just like, quit, quit fighting with each other. I'm I mean, sick and tired of hearing it. It's because, like, the real-life political equivalent is, like, two commoners who have a dispute that, you know, their local village, whatever, can't solve. So they have to take it to the king. And the king is, A, you know, regal and very important, but, B, bored of all these people's, like, petty squabbles. Right. So, I, you know, in Bird versus Fish, which we read previously, mm -hmm. King Shulgi, who is a real historical king that that text was probably written under, is the king who intervenes and declares Bird the winner. Ah, um, okay. But the thing that the text is referencing is the real-life king deciding you know, disputes between commoners. So, you know, he will he will always pick a winner, but he doesn't really respect the winner. He's like, all right, you win, you win, you win, go right, away. Right, right, right. Like, hey, how about you guys stop fighting? Yeah. I'm just going to, you know what? You're louder. You've talked more. So mm -hmm. yep. this is for you. Plow, you know, whatever. You're still important. Don't worry, honey. Yeah, no, <laughs> like, yes, get bit, out of my court. Nisaba is the scribe goddess, like mm -hmm. the goddess of writing and the goddess of grain. The fact that Nisaba is a hose inspector, that's why the next line says, the scribe will register your work because it's written by the scribes, and the other patron goddess is the one uh, overseeing the whole process. Mm -hmm. The hoe having engaged in a dispute with the plow. The hoe triumphed over the plow. Praise be to Nisaba. Mm -hmm.